You need to embrace capitalism. It is this hope which is the lever of progress. My favorite Fed. To keep one's reactions warm and true. They attack us because we're over there. Is to have found the secret of perpetual youth. Man, you're too pretty to be a libertarian. And perpetual youth is salvation. Salutations, sat stackers, and kin. You're listening to a boy named Sue. That is Mr. Sue to you, a.k.a. Phil Gibson. And it is an honor to be on the Bitcoin Made Simple Network. This is, I guess, my debut episode with you guys. So if you haven't heard it already, go ahead and check out the episode that Luke and I did on Fix the Money. And that's kind of like my background of who I am. But basically, I'm a Bitcoiner, libertarian, I guess, I sort of divorced myself from that, I guess, moniker. But whatever, man, I'm here. I love Bitcoin. I love freedom. And I deep dive into really the macro aspects and geopolitics because, again, my libertarian background, foreign policy, Austrian econ, all that stuff. So that's kind of where I'm going to be focusing on it. And of course, I'll have guests on in the field, uh, inside and outside Bitcoin. I've had plenty of that in the past, and I don't get too techie, but sometimes I do. I mean, I'm just, I have people on that know more than I do, so I can learn and take that knowledge and apply it in my life. So you don't have to, <laughs> or of course, take this knowledge and apply it to your life as you see fit. I just do the heavy lifting for you. So yeah, Corey, Luke, I am so thankful to be on the network and just get the signal out there. And yeah, let's, let's, let's orange pill the world one head by head, head by head. And yeah, let, let's just get into it. So of course... This is my debut, and a lot of my thinking has come from the the I, I sit on the shoulders of giants. Of course, you got Mises, Rothbard. You got people people like Scott Horton. You've got people in the Bitcoin space, Luke Roman, whatever. But I read an article for Bitcoin Magazine on January second of this year, twenty twenty two, and it it was entitled "Why Jerome Powell's." policies are bullish for Bitcoin. And it originated from a man that I discovered in late September of 2021, who goes by Tom Luongo. And he's got a vast history. He was actually like a, a trained chemist for a while, a couple of decades, I believe. And he's just kind of a renaissance man. He's got his own place in North Florida on his own farm with, in a house that he built with his own bare hands. And he runs the Gold's Goats, Gold, hold on, am I going to get this right? Gold, Goats, and Guns newsletter and podcast. And I'm a proud subscriber to him from all the great things I learned. And a lot of this mentality that I I guess I'm, I'm approaching, bringing forth this perspective, all kind of comes through the heavy lifting that both Jeff Snyder has done and Luke Roman, but really Tom and just taking that 
analytical sort of scientific method approach of looking at the world of events around us and really diving into the nuance. And this in particular is monetary policy and how the Fed isn't really our enemy, I guess. It's it's really it's really off for me to come around to that conclusion. It's it's awful. The Fed sucks. I mean I wrote a song called End the Fed. Well it's really ETF or really E period, T period, F period. You can check that stuff out in the show notes if you want. But it's also my twinned, my twinned, my pinned Twitter uh, tweet. But uh, the Fed sucks. Central planning always fails. But we, what we're really doing is breaking into, again, the nuance of monetary policy. And essentially, it's Fed versus Davos. If you listen to that episode that I did with Luke. Is the Fed versus Davos and Jerome Powell, Wall Street, Jamie Dimon, whoever you want to call it, on that U.S. globalist sort of side, they're fighting for survival and they're tightening. They're raising interest rates of all kinds and they're doing everything they can to preserve the credibility of the dollar and really prevent capital flight out of the U.S. and into the EU. And the EU is trying to do the same thing. And for decades, maybe longer, LIBOR was the tool that allowed them to do that. And now, is LIBOR and the euro dollar. And really, the Fed has kind of used every tool that they have to their advantage. And now that tool now is being off LIBOR and on SOFR, S-O-F-R. We'll get into all of this, but it's really uh, it, just learning all the things I've learned from Tom and really doing the deep dive and just getting autistic as hell with this subject is is basically where my head's at and where it's going to be at as I watch things unfold in the world because it's not just economics, it's, it's geopolitics and politics because the one thing you cannot do is separate the two. <laughs> right like it's the tail that wags a dog and the and they and they switch positions is it is it economics that's the, the tail or is it politics it's it's really kind of a, of a of a yin yang thing and and i feel like a lot of people in the bitcoin space really take that for granted they don't look at it that way because they think oh bitcoin is an, is an apolitical thing well i mean politics is just the association of, of people and their ideologies and really understanding incentives. So I guess we're going to get more Austrian there, but you can't separate the two. And that's kind of what my show, A Boy Named Sue, is trying to really unpack and, again, understand the world and take all this knowledge and apply it to your daily life. So that's my story and premise for this episode in a shell. So I'm just going to cut the crap and big shout out to the sponsors of the show or sponsor that makes this happen. So Shift Crypto and they have the big box O2, the Bitbox O2, very sleek, simple hardware wallet because the main selling point for Bitcoin, at least one of the main selling points is that you are your own bank. Okay, you don't need to trust that somebody is holding your money and that it's actually yours and you, you can get it yourself whenever you want. Have we not learned our lessons yet? Have we not learned the sanctioning of Russian reserves 
and having that basically taken from Russia so they could bail out the EU? Have we not learned from the trucker incident in Canada? Your money's not yours, people. There's fractional reserve banking is being rehypothecated to like the thousandth time. It's 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 fiat. It's not yours. What is yours is Bitcoin. So long as you take it off the exchange and take self-custody of it, put your big boy pants on or big girl pants on and just be self-sovereign. This is your money. Use it when you need it. <laughs> oh man. Throwback to cringy, cringy infomercials. Was that was that JJ Wentworth, 877 Cash Now? I think so. Yeah. Ooh, throwback. Anyway, they're not a sponsor, but Shift Crypto in the Bitbox O2 is. So pick it up. It's pretty simple. And just take self-custody. Be self-sovereign. Because really, that's why we Bitcoin. is self-sovereignty. And what's even more self-sovereign is discounts. Everybody loves discounts. So you can get your discount with promo code Bitcoin made simple when you go to Shift Crypto and you'll get 5% off. So, hey, you're welcome. Tell them Phil sent you. And yeah, that's shiftcrypto.ch and that's promo code Bitcoin made simple. All caps, no spaces. Get them while they're hot. So, anyway, that's my spiel. I'm Phil. Great to meet you guys. Happy to be on the network. Corey, Luke, hats off. And uh, I like to end my monologues like this with a little, a little saying that my human geography teacher from my freshman year of high school would always say when people were complaining about too much homework or if it was too hard or maybe he was just being snarky or a dick, I don't know. But his response to them every time would be, own your failure, own your failure. And this kind of goes back to what self-sovereignty means. Own your failure. Learn from your failure. It's your failure. It's no one else's problem. Don't point the finger at someone else. It's you. And that's what Bitcoin really emphasizes because it's your money. It is your time and capital. And if it's with someone else, if you're trusting some other entity and you're just going to give all that responsibility over to them and not yourself, it's not really your money. It's not really your time or you're pissing your time away. So own your failure because God knows our so-called leaders do not. Davos, the cabal, Atlanticists, your boss, I don't know. I mean, these people are just, they are villains. It That is what it boils down to. And... Central planning fails, as we know, but they have the hubris to think that they're going to win because they've been winning for years upon years. So own your failure. Take self-custody of your Bitcoin because God knows our so-called leaders do not. You don't need them. You're your own leader in your own community. So with that said, my name is Phil Gibson. You can find me on Twitter mostly for now until we all get shadow banned as uh, we're they're calling us psychopaths now. <laughs> we went from Bitcoin shadowy super coders to psychopaths, and I am a proud psychopath, as you will see currently on my Twitter 
name. <laughs> Phil Gibson, proud psychopath. So you can find me there at Mr. Sue. That's M R P S E U. The show is called A Boy Named Sue, P S E U, like the Johnny Cash song, but pseudonymous, all that jazz. And like the show, give it a five star rating, give it a review, share it out. But yeah, that's me. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And let's get on with the episode. This is my conversation that I had with Tom Luongo. And it's going to set the stage of the monetary war that we are currently at and really diving deep into the nuance of what's going on. And really, the more you know, knowledge is power. So this is my debut on the Bitcoin Made Simple Network. It's been a pleasure. Hope you enjoy it. Share the episode. And until next time, again, own your failure because God knows our so-called leaders do not. Enjoy this conversation with me and Tom Luongo. Salutations, Zest Stackers and Ken. You're listening to a boy named Sue. That's Mr. Sue to you, a.k.a. Phil Gibson. Once again, I am just blessed with the pleasure of having Mr. Tom Luongo back on the show. I'm a proud patron of him and the Gold Gibson Guns, just everything he does. And I've just had my brain rocked since I think I had you on in october i think something, something like that it was it was i think it was right after it wasn't right after you you either became a patron or like like dude i need to have you on the show like, I'm, I'm okay well i'm you know i'm only i'm only to do anybody's show once and then find out figure out whether or not it's you know <laughs> so i'm back so obviously the first the first time around was good so um yeah for sure yeah, i think it was october so when we were I discussing so. the the fed thesis about whether or not the fed was actually you know uh quote unquote on our side or not so i think that's what, what we talked about the last time yeah and i think that that thesis still stands and recently it's developed mm-hmm. and if we're going to get into that i got questions for you and let's, let's just start there so sure. you you've conducted a new updated thesis where which has to do with libor so mm-hmm. before that let's get into like you know, what is LIBOR for anyone that doesn't know, but before sure. that, let's just give kind of like a quick background of your thesis on the Fed raising rates and kind of this Wall Street for Davos sort of thing. Sure. There's a lot to go. That'll take 10, 15 minutes easily. I mean, I don't know how long it'll take. It'll take, it'll take a, a while. So for those of you who are not up, you know, who are not up to speed on what I think about all this, um, last June, uh, on the same day as the Biden-Putin summit in Geneva, the Federal Reserve met and it was supposed to be an inconsequential meeting. They didn't do anything, right? Well, they did. They raised the um, the 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 payout rate on the reverse repo contracts from 0% to five basis points. Basically, the Fed was now willing to pay five basis points or 0.05% um, for uh, anybody willing to uh, execute a reverse repo contract, which in this case is the Fed will sell them a... Uh, a U.S. Treasury, and they would take dollars out of the markets. That's what a reverse repo does. The Fed buys dollars and sells uh, for a time per- for a certain time period, and uh, 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 U.S. security. So it could be an overnight. It could be seven. It could be a seven day, a fourteen day, thirty days. You know, repos come in all sort of forms and shapes and sizes. I just want to shut down some other things that are making noise. So that was a big deal because the immediate response by the market. And it, I wouldn't have thought anything of it if 
um, the market hadn't gone completely ballistic. The euro dropped three cents that day in response. And that set off like all sorts of spidey cents. And I'm like, what's going on here? Okay, so then, just real quick, like when the euro, because th- this is super critical understanding because there's a battle between really the Fed and the, the ECB or the EU versus America mm-hmm. and American capitalism for what it is currently. When the euro drops, again, for anyone who doesn't understand like macro markets looking at charts and stuff, mm-hmm. when the euro drops, that just means that it, it just, if, if you're like, you see a drop in the Bitcoin price or whatever crypto you might follow, it's just a lack of, of interest. And well, so- it's a couple of things. It, what it means is that you've fundamentally shifted the demand curve of one thing versus another. When price, when a yeah. price of something drops, it means that the demand for the thing in terms of the denominator, in this case, dollars, dropped. So the euro, USD, pair. Remember, everything has a denominator in the price, right? Right. doesn't matter if we're talking about coffee cups or euros or you know, Russian oil or, you know, blowjobs from your local, you know, daytime hooker. It doesn't matter. Everything has a denominator, right? We in America use dollars. Those in Europe use euros. And and so when you're looking at currency pairs, right, you're always thinking in terms of why would a currency move a lot versus another currency? And in this case, why did the euro drop three cents from like a dollar twelve to a dollar nine in like an hour? That's not normal in currency markets, okay? Currency markets don't usually move 2.5% in an hour, okay? They just don't. And when they do, a lot of people lose a lot of money because most Forex traders are levered anywhere from 100 to 10,000 to one, okay? So, <laughs> no, seriously, like when you're buying, when you, what, you, what you do when you're Forex trade, and I don't do this, but I know, you know, in, in, in unregulated Forex markets, you're usually buying 100,000 to one leverage. Right. So you put a dollar on the table to command a thousand dollars worth of currency and then, you know, play the, and then, yeah, I mean, and it's crazy. It's, it's, it's casino gambling. It's not, it's not trading. Jesus. So when the euro moves that far, you have to ask yourself, well, why would that be? Well, it had to be at that moment that it was draining dollars out of, you know, macro terms, draining dollars out of European markets. People were selling euros to get dollars. Like all of a sudden it's, it shifted. The demand for dollars positively when up to up until that point the, the the dollar had been in a bear market for like a year and a half and this immediately flipped the market uh for the us dollar broadly from bearish to bullish and so that set off my brain to go okay so why did that happen why would this be important and then i thought about what a reverse repo contract is and I said, well, I've been saying in days leading up to that, I don't know if you were a patron at the time or not. You might not have been. I don't think you were. But in the days leading up to that, talking to my patrons and my biweekly market reports and some of the private blog posts I do, I said, at some point, the Fed has to step in here and defend the dollar. And I think I literally said that the, the Sunday before the Fed meeting. And I didn't say, you know, it could be on Wednesday. But at some point, the Fed is going to come in and defend the dollar. And then lo and behold, three days later, the Fed comes in and massively defends the dollar. And then you got to ask yourself, why would they do that? And then at the same time, all these budget talks were happening about the Build Back Better bill and the spending bill and all this stuff was happening on Capitol Hill. And I just said, this isn't making any sense. When you, when you put together all the little bits of pieces of information that have been out there for the last couple of years, you then, and I just put everything together that I've heard from a variety of people. 
Martin Armstrong was banging on privately in the private blog post saying, look, the point of the Davos's great reset is to destroy the commercial banking system, the current commercial banking system and roll everything up to the central banks. Well, what does the reverse repo, what does paying positive uh, spread or positive yield on the reverse repo contract do? At the, that moment in time, during, you know, post-COVID, the savings rate in the United States was ex- had exploded. Now, savings for bank is the bank's liability. Your savings is the bank's liability. Loans are the bank's assets. It's completely backwards the way your balance, personal balance sheet works, right? Where your savings is, are your assets and your loans are liabilities. But for the bank, it's the exact reverse. So if the bank can't lend, but there's all the savings, then the bank needs to post collateral has to have collateral on their balance sheet to offset the savings. Well, that's where you go into the reverse repo market to go get collateral, form of USDs, US treasuries. So that's what the Fed did. So this was an immediate mechanism by which, and it had been rising for a while, right? That we had the uh, you know, 400, the, the balance on the reverse repo facility, the, the carry balance went from $450 billion over the course of three months to $1.7 trillion. And a part of the reason why the Fed did that was because the, Fed, uh, the the Treasury would be spending a lot of dollars into the market that they had raised during the Trump administration, the last days of the Trump administration. And all of a sudden, that spending was going to start hitting. And that was one reason why a lot of macro analysts, certainly guys over at Zero Hedge, thought the Fed was doing this. But it was deeper than that. When you when you went through all the numbers, you know, the Fed still literally drained over seven hundred billion dollars worth of. This is base money. This is not credit money. This is base money in the global um, supply of dollars. This is not; these are not credit dollars. These are real dollars. When they go onto the Fed's balance sheet, they're they're M zero. They're not M two or M three. So when you're pulling base money out of the system, that means something. When you pull that much base money out of the system, the Fed has now gone immediately from loosening monetary policy or loose monetary policy to tight monetary policy without actually raising interest rates or without raising the headline Fed funds rate, their lending rate. They, they tightened monetary policy by using the reverse repo facility as opposed to the Fed funds rate, which is the normal, which is the one we all talk about in macro terms, which they just raised for the first time ever two weeks ago, right? That set me going, okay, so why would they do that? What's going on here? And I, and I, I started just thinking through it. I'm like, I just don't believe that U.S. commercial banking interests here in the United States would be okay with a bunch of European shitbag fucking eugenicists controlling monetary U.S. monetary policy. I just don't believe that. I like when I think sit down and I think of Jamie Dimon and I think of Klaus Schwab. I think Jamie Dimon thinks Klaus Schwab is a degenerate German douchebag. Gone. And I don't think it's any deeper than that. And I remember at the time talking with some of my patrons who were market professionals who know these people. And they all said, yeah, Tom, you're absolutely right. And Jay Powell's um, uh, nickname is Private Equity Powell. He comes from a private equity background. He comes from a background of protecting the New York banks, even when he was an undersecretary at the Treasury Department back in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, right? And he moved into private equity and came back again. So he's always been a guy that would protect U.S. banking interests. So he's not an ivory tower intellectual like Bernanke or Yellen. Okay, and so that this is fun. This all fits like the thesis fit with the what I knew about the people. 
And so when you understand the motivations of the people, then you understand the motivations of the people who head these organizations. Then you can construct a thesis that makes sense about what you're seeing in policy. Okay, so that's the background. That thesis has been borne out to be correct with every move that I've seen since that. Right. So you were about to say something, or did you? Yeah, it's kind of the nitty gritty, but just uh, I don't have a real understanding of the background of like the the implications of private equity and why that's so. Like, I love the the banking cartel in the U.S. and the the dollar. Like, who are these people? What are they thinking? And why is it like? pro dollar versus ECB and like, you know, why private equity pal and Jamie Dimon are on the same side specifically. Well, I mean, why wouldn't they be like the, um, the near the, the fed is dominated by the New York fed of the 12 member of the 12 regional banks is dominated by the New York fed. Who's the shareholder of the New York fed, all the major money center banks in New York, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, BOFA, Citibank, right. Wells, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So and the New York Fed is like the most important, like uh, that's the one that really sets policy. It's the most powerful. It's like California just is the because most powerful it, state. like New York is like the capital market. It has all. World, I guess it right? has the most capital because they control yeah. the most capital. Like the Kansas City Fed doesn't control nearly as much capital as New York Fed does. Yeah. Okay? Right, let's right. Just like let's not let's let's not mince words here. The San Francisco Fed on the other hand, on the on the other hand is you know it's that's it's it's important right. So, yeah. but New York Fed dominates policy. It, within the Fed, just like California dom- dominates policy in Congress or did for many, many years, right? So California can get away with, with bad policy and then export it east, right? Every bad idea that's ever happened in, in, in Congress starts in California and then migrates east, right? Yeah. Same, same kind of thing. Whatever, whatever, New York, whatever the New York Fed wants, the New York Fed gets, and then the rest of the member, sent, the, uh, the member uh, banks of the Federal Reserve have to kind of go along with it. They speak with a very big voice. So does anybody really believe that these major U.S. major uh, commercial banks are going to be willing to give up their business and roll everything up to the central banks and give all the power over to the Fed and the ECB and the BOJ and then eventually collapse all that, which is Davos's plan, into the IMF and the BIS to be the world central bank issuing the world currency? with the UN as the political arm. That's the goal. That's the stated goal of the World Economic Forum. It's the stated goal of the IMF, all these people. You read their unreadable white papers. This is what they talk. They talk about this stuff all the time. They talk about it very casually over, you know, coffee and Swiss chocolate at Davos every year. Fucking near these people. <laughs> it's not like they're, it's not like they, they hide this shit. It's right there. It's not a conspiracy theory. They talk about it. All you got to do is listen. Most people don't have time to listen, so it sounds crazy, but it's absolutely the truth. They get away with this of hiding in plain sight because most people are too fucking busy to give a shit. And they just think that, you know, what they're told by the, cap- the captured media, who, by the way, work for fucking Davos, that, that, that no, no, that's really not that sinister. Don't worry about it. Bullshit. The minute they call something a conspiracy theory, it's true. Take that as your heuristic and then force them to prove to you that it's not true better you'll be right more often than than wrong so once you have that set of incentives in your head now you have to start crafting a way how does the fed get out of this mess that they're in right well they started by tightening monetary policy before anybody wanted them to tighten monetary policy right 
the spending bills on the fiscal side are are the the are the kind of blackmail. Congress is constantly spending more money than they take in, and somehow the Treasury has to sell the bonds in order to cover the spending. And whatever they can't sell has to be bought by the primary dealers, all the major banks, the primary dealer banks, they have to buy them and then they immediately flip them to the Federal Reserve. Okay. And then the Fed tries to sell them or accumulate them on their balance sheet or whatever. And what's QE? QE is just saying, yeah, we'll just buy the stuff directly. Okay. So all those, you know, ridiculously technical posts on Zero Hedge about the bond auctions and whether they tailed and what the, and all that stuff, I read those like carefully. For years, I didn't understand what they meant. And then I used to, I've been reading Zero Hedge since it started. And for years, I didn't know what they meant. Now I understand what they mean. Treasury auctions are the big deal because that's telling you what the appetite for foreigners to continue to buy our debt so we can export our inflation, right? And the proportion of takedown by the primary dealers and the well, what they call the indirects, the primary dealers, is what's important. And when that proportion is low, that means that there's usually, that there's a lot of market demand for USDs. And when the indirects are high, there's no demand. And so you start tightening monetary policy. Who is harmed by a tightening of monetary policy? Well, everybody out there who's short dollars, who needs to have dollars in order to cover all of their debts that are denominated in dollars. And there's biblically trillions and tens of trillions of dollars out there that's in dollar-denominated U.S. debt, uh, U.S. dollar-denominated debt issued by foreign corporate, you know, foreign corporates and foreign governments and everything else. Like, I mean, you know, there are governments out there that issue dollar-denominated debt to issue their own local currency. They do that. We, we've issued Swiss bank, Swiss franc bonds during the Carter administration. Everybody forgets this. When the dollar was so weak during 1979, the Carter administration was selling U.S. debt denominated and payable in Swiss francs because the franc was a better currency at that point than the dollar was, right? During the, the height of the Volcker interest rate rise. So you raise rates, you drain the world of dollars. Everybody still needs dollars to, to, to service their loans. That's going to make a run on the dollar. So when the Fed did this, it literally supercharged and changed the market overnight. And then you'll notice that the political um, response on Wall on Capitol Hill was immediate, almost immediate. They immediate Pelosi and company immediately went into the strategy of trying to pass all the debt ceiling, the big infrastructure bill, and build back better all with with one omnibus vote. Why? Because they were trying to use the debt ceiling increase to blackmail. The rest of Congress into passing all of this stuff, because that was the only way they were going to get the other two spending bills passed in their current form. And that kept failing. The Fed and everybody with three brain cells to rub together to make a spark knew that all this COVID spending was eventually going to, and the and supply chain disruption was going to cause massive inflation. And then, so there was, so this was a game now, this was a race for time um, between when inflation was going to hit, thereby undermining the need for um, the, the spending bills because, hey, GDP is rising, we're at full employment, and we've got inflation. We don't need six and a half trillion more dollars in spending. It's why the Democrats were lying to us that Build Back Better was fully paid for. Bullshit. It's why Joe Manchin kept saying, I'm going to wait for the CBO report of how much this is going to cost. 
That's why when the CBO report of the Build Back Better bill came out and said, it's not going to, it's not revenue neutral. It's going to be six and a half trillion dollars worth of spending. And all of that spending is front loaded in the first three years of the bill. Which is crazy because Joe Manchin is a Democrat. From West Virginia, which makes him a fiscal conservative, like blue dog Democrat. Okay. So um, remember, he represents coal mining interests. Like it's, it's, he's, he's a Democrat because that's how he got elected. That's the party he got elected. Right. It doesn't yeah. really matter. So he's obviously off the train. So was Kirsten Cinema over in um, Arizona. So those two all summer long played this game of, of delaying the passing of these spending bills, waiting for inflation to hit. And I'm sure that it was Wall Street standing behind them going, yeah, no, you, 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 you keep saying no. <laughs> and frustrating Pelosi. While we wait for the political time, for the political situation to resolve itself such that we will be able to go for the jugular. Remember also that Jay Powell was up for reappointment. And so Powell had to be very careful with his language so as to not tip off the world politically that he was doing anything to upset the apple cart, okay? So that he kept the, the Fed, he kept giving um, you know, plausible deniability that the Fed wasn't trying to torch all of this, the, the, the president's agenda, okay? So, so what happens in the fall? Well, during the height of all this, the insider trading scandal, the Fed happens during the fall. First time ever we see the Fed come under this kind of political pressure. It's a classic Obama-style um, political assassination job. The person who was most uh, who would most benefit from this uh, from the changing of the Fed board and the try to get and they went after Powell and they didn't get it uh, was Lyle Brainerd. That's who um, Obama wanted to put in as Fed chair. Because because uh, Brainerd is as you know bad a MMT shitbag fucking commie that you could ever ask for. She's the most commie of all of the potential Fed chairmen that would be out there. Worse than this 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 cunt Sarah Bloom Raskin who they just torched, right? Worse than her. Like and Brainerd was the one is the one in charge of the compliance of of signing off on all the Fed governors' trading activity. So she leaks this information that she signed off on to BuzzFeed to create the political scandal to try and get Fed governors fired. She got three, but she didn't get Powell. She got the three biggest hawks on, and notice that she got the three biggest hawks on the board other than Powell. Kaplan, Rosengren, and um, uh, the other guys. Uh, they got him later. I don't remember. I can't remember the name. Um, but the three biggest hawks on the board in order to try and stall, stall out and stop the, the rate hikes. They were going to then put in a whole bunch of, you know, doves, shitbag commies, for lack of a better term, in order to shift the Federal Reserve Board to keep them from raising interest rates. Now, who is the one person, who is the one organization out there that cannot afford for the Fed to raise interest rates? The European Central Bank. Because Europe, as bad as we are off, Fiscally, Europe is 10 times worse. Europe's at negative 0.6% on their, their, their deposit rate. They've been destroying their, bond, their sovereign bond market with negative interest rates for 10 years now, right? So who's harmed by this? And so when you see the euro drop by three points and European bond yields bust out to the upside and forcing the ECB to go, you know, come in and, and start 
trying to buy up the market and expand. And the ECB expanded their QE program in response to this. So this thesis fits that, it, that, that this was a targeted attack on the ECB, who is the primary you know, vector for Davos's power along with the euro dollar markets. And I have to explain that in a minute as well. So just real, real quick, hopefully this sure. doesn't take too much of a tangent, but I, Davos ECB Europe is trying to destroy the economy the of Europe. Well, well also, yeah, they are. Like, they are because they people, need to build they back They want to just make them like all just fucking like serfs and well, starve well, them. well, what they want to do is they want to do away with the member central banks of the, the individual and roll all okay, the power so up to the ECB and then the issue a digital first. Europe. Right. Okay. And then and cancel all the debt or cancel most of the debt issue some perpetual debt for the, and okay. pay it in, you know, digital script. This is George Soros's plan. It's when he talks about consoles, so, that's what he's talking about. Yeah. So, so, so the, it, they had to keep them on like the, the drip line as, yeah, until and so, they destroy American banks. But, but yeah, they have, but they kind of, but they've got to keep capital from flowing back into the United States. They got to keep capital frozen in Europe by making the United States into a shit show politically, yeah. culturally, economically. Right. Yeah, so gotcha. if we, because capital flows to where it's treated best, right? So it's being treated like shit over in Europe, but if it's being treated equally like shit in the United States or worse, then money will stay and then the capital won't flee Europe, right? But if it starts getting treated better in the United States and the interest rate spread between the central banks rises, which is where it's going right now, that's the trajectory, then capital is going to go and get a better rate of return on U.S. debt over here. Than so once those spreads rise in such a way that they are um, greater than the spread between inflation in Europe versus the United States, then we'll just flow into treasury, you know, into tips and other things uh, and in- inflation protected products here in the United States. Um, so you know, in broad terms, like for the, you know, I mean, there are market professionals who can explain this far better than I can, but I understand this at the, you know, 30,000 foot level and to, well enough to be able to talk to, you know, kind of a layman, a layman plus level understanding of this. So, and then you just start thinking about this in terms of games theory. And this is where these theses can come out. And then I have market professionals coming in and go, oh, you're absolutely right, dude. And here's why. And they're all talking to me privately <laughs> behind the scenes, by the way. Like I'm, I'm, they're coming out of the, the bigger, my, my profile gets, the more people are coming in from behind the scenes and going, Oh yeah, you're absolutely right about this. This is so true. I, I was on, I worked this desk over here doing, and I heard this. Yeah. It's like, Oh, by the way, you know, this, this bank is Davos. This one isn't the yada, yada, yada. So um, they're all using my terminology now. It's just fucking hilarious. Um, again, not patting myself on the back or anything. I'm trying to break my hand, patting myself on the back or anything. I'm just saying, you know, cool. I'm getting the, 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 I'm out here on a limb talking about this stuff and I'm getting confirmation from professionals behind me. And that helps me to say, okay, I'm right. And now I can build off of this and now I can build the next layer of the argument. Yeah. And that's where we are today. So you asked about LIBOR because on Tuesday night's live stream, I blew everybody's mind when I started talking about what, how LIBOR fits into all this. So here's the thesis, but what's missing, right? is the catalyst by which the Fed can actually do this. What's the, what's the thing that glues all of this together? Because this sounds good, but if you listen to Jeff Snyder over at Lomber Partners, 
um, and the guy who does Euro Dollar Universe, and he's brilliant, and you should listen to Jeff because he's a very smart guy, and I've learned a lot, tremendous amount from Jeff. The Euro Dollar market, which is the offshore dollar market, okay, and Euro Dollar is a term just for all offshore dollars. It doesn't matter they're held in Hong Kong, Beijing, London, Frankfurt, Rio, wherever. It doesn't matter. Offshore, not and, in and, the US. And just to, just to append on the euro dollar, the way it works is basically any euros in an account can be sent to another account and be just changed into dollars. No, they are, no, they're not euros in any way. They are dollars held in foreign banks, period. They're not euros at all. They're just dollars held it's, in forereign banks. So a... So at so at a, at a at a Frankfurt branch of Deutsche Bank, a company or a bank holds twenty million dollars worth of dollars in their bank account. They can issue loans against those twenty million dollars in reserves and create more dollars and and the aggregate create more dollars in credit than the Fed can through monetary policy. Take the word euro out of euro dollar and just say offshore dollars. Offshore okay, dollars so like- that are okay, and because the euro dollar idea started with it 90% of the offshore dollars were in Europe post-World War II, okay? And it just became a, a term of art of the industry. But it just means offshore dollars. These are dollars. They're not yen or Hong Kong dollars or Singapore dollars or Malaysian ringgit or euros or rubles or anything else. They are dollars held, held in foreign banks, okay? In foreign accounts. They That's can be weird because, as- I mean, like, w- it's Wikipedia just lying to me, which isn't a surprise. But the way it lays it out, it's like, well, these are euros. And then no, if you send not. it to this account over here, those euros will actually be converted into dollars instead. Like, that's no, the way they're not. I mean, they can be, but there's still dollars being held overseas. Right. They're like, it doesn't matter if they're being held as U.S. treasuries or they're being held as dollars. Like At the end of the day, they're dollar denominated assets being held in foreign banks. They could be offset with other things or whatever. And yes, Wikipedia is 90% of the time lying about just about everything that matters. So these are actual dollars for all intents and purposes. And you can issue dollars off of any of these reserves, okay? And so the Euro dollar system and the Euro dollar futures curve that exists to offset the risk and anticipate the Fed funds rate is used as a blackmail tool to control Fed monetary policy. And the key to understanding this between the euro dollar system being able to create dollars, more dollars than the Fed can create, and Congress forcing the Fed to create dollars that it, we can't afford to pay back in the form of debt, the Fed has almost no control of their own policy. The Fed has to liquefy the entire world because it's being blackmailed by both Congress and the offshore dollar markets. Now, how do they, how do they, what's the mechanism that actually makes that work? LIBOR. LIBOR is the London overnight, um, or low, uh, London interbank overnight offer rate, okay? London uh, interbank offer rate, right? Uh, L-I-B-O-R. There's a high bore over in, um, in Hong Kong. There's a Eurobor in Frankfurt, blah, 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 LIBOR. Up until recently, LIBOR underwrote every debt instrument in the United States was written against the LIBOR. So your mortgage is LIBOR plus one or LIBOR minus one, and your car loan is based on LIBOR, everything based on LIBOR. What is LIBOR? Is it a market rate? No. 18 banks in the city of London get together every night and decide 
based on what they're seeing in the market, supposedly, and they set an overnight and they set the rate. So if the Fed decides to raise interest rates and that starts draining dollars uh, and, and starts draining the, the capital system in London, what happens? And in Europe, what happens? London raises the LIBOR and all the debt here in the United States has to react as well. It's completely coupled to whatever's happening in Europe. So they have control of the freaking monetary policy. The Fed tries to raise rates. This is why we've always we've seen the Fed raise rates and then immediately go, oh my God, and then they have to cut rates. Why? Because the commercial banks here in the United States, the regional banks are all going under because the debts, because the debts are blowing, because every, you know, every debt that's indexed to LIBOR is blowing out to, and people aren't can't service the debt. Enter John Williams, Jerome Powell, and SOFR, the secured overnight funding rate. What is SOFR? John Williams at the Atlanta Fed brought in right after, along with Powell, who, by the way, both of their appointments were bitterly contested by all the people that, all the bad guys, including all the most controlled by Davos um, New York member bank, like Morgan Stanley. Fucking hate this, this stuff. Morgan Stanley wrote, I can't tell you how much about how terrible SOFR would be. Also note, and in the 18 London banks, the only one of them represents American interests, and that's J.P. Morgan's London office. The rest of them are all European and Asian banks. Right. Scottish banks, London banks, um, Deutsche Bank. Got it, got it. And Okay. So understand that American monetary policy is being set by 18 member banks of LIBOR up until 2018, 2017 or 2018 with the introduction of SOFR, which, by the way, was proposed after Lehman Brothers fell in 2008 and took 10 years to get, finally get implemented because Geithner, Bernanke, Yellen, all the people under Obama said no to it. And there wasn't any, and there wasn't enough, um, uh, there wasn't enough support. Uh, support within the Federal Reserve to actually do this and then the Treasury Department to get this done. That changed. So, so, so for decades, LIBOR was kind of like the status quo. And then it wasn't until very recently it sounds very recent sofr so how long has so since okay so sofr was was, so sofr went into effect i think in late uh, in in uh, early 2018 i think it was 2017 2018 but it was a staged rollout so slowly over time you know it it was it was rolled out to and it's a market rate meaning um right all it does is crazy to think about (laughs) right it's actually a market rate and it's a market rate of of, Quote, of unquote, free transactions based, right? It's a, no, it is a market rate because it's based on the transactions that are actually done between U.S. member, U.S. overnight you know, lending between, and based on hundreds of thousands of transactions that happen every day between American banks, right? So it's actually built on real trading activity by the people who have a vested interest in the debt that they're trading. Yeah, and they're indexing, right? It. Uh, unbelievable that we actually didn't have the system previously. Right. So what SOFR does by, so it's a market rate that is reflective of the current state of affairs in the overnight lending markets, the overnight money markets here in the United States. Slowly, all of the debt in the United States is being indexed now to SOFR. It took four years. And at the end of 2021, no debt issued in the United States 
as of the end of 2021, will be ever be issued against LIBOR ever again. SOFR is the, is the now the law of the land. Nice. Note, in 2022, SOFR became 100% of all new debt instruments written in the United States, the indexing rate. Now, we had already mostly appro- approached that point and all old debt, like old 30-year mortgages and whatnot, there they were you know a lot of them were refinanced under SOFR the the contracts rewritten and and, and so this has been a four slow uh, this has been a four year rollout because it's been very successful SOFR is what the market wanted desperately and so the take up rate on SOFR uh, indexing for debt you know went through the roof the minute it hit the market and it was allowed and it was you know it was a stage rollout in various products and eventually until until the entire product the entire market so now what do we have we now have a decoupling between the euro dollar system and the U.S. monetary policy. So, just real quick, it's it's been for decades until the last four years, the euro dollar system and LIBOR basically running and controlling American banks. Like, regardless of what the Fed does, other than like increase all the other rates, that's been the status quo for decades. Yep. Yeah. That's what actually allowed the rise of Davos and the international banking cartel to the level yeah. and the international oligarch cartel that we have today. Davos, this, yeah. this created this massive explosion of credit and then the ability to command real goods in the marketplace with fucking phony credit created by European banks or Hong Kong banks or whomever. Like everybody has been victimized by this while these people have used this VIG to their advantage to arrogate more capital and more power to themselves, undermining governments, undermining elections, buying, manipulating currency markets, causing color revolutions and all the rest of it. And this is fully why it's a war between central banks. Yes. (laughs) Mind fucking blown, right? Oh my God. So now, right. Now, now really think this through. Like, what does this mean? So now when the Fed raises rates, it actually can raise rates. And everybody is so conditioned to the old ways of doing things that they're not seeing what's right in front of them, which is that the Fed's going to raise rates and they give a fuck what happens to the yield curve or this or that or anything. I don't give a shit. They're now in the mode of they can now turn to Congress and go, sure, try and blackmail us with another $1.65 trillion spending bill, Nancy, that you pulled out of your ass. Where are you going to get the money? You better hope that there's demand for U.S. Treasuries. The only way there's going to be demand for U.S. Treasuries is going to be much higher rates then 1.4% on the 10-year, it's got to be 2.5% or 3%. Okay. Like that's what the Treasury Department... And then in doing that, it's going to put a massive um, 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 pressure on the budgeting aspect because for every point that we raise, that the Fed raises rates, $300 billion go onto the budget in terms of debt servicing. So okay, this is going to force does- fiscal discipline on, on Congress. So I, or they're going to default. A couple, a couple of things here. I... What is stopping more euro dollars printing over in Europe to flood into the U.S.? Obviously, that's that that's the increase in basis points. In if you look at the euro dollar futures right? curve, Phil, over the since the last yeah, okay. And here's the question: The Fed raised rates by 25 basis points the other day, right? Go look at the euro dollar futures curve. 
it's sunk in the long, uh, it's sunk over a point over the 12, over a 15 month, like go fi- 15 months out. And it's sunk over a point, meaning they're now expecting the Fed to raise to 3% by the December 2023 as opposed to 2%. The cost of capital for dollars overseas is rising rapidly. They can't because yeah. they can't afford to, to, who's buying dollar denominated debt at 3% over there? Yeah. Or 4% or 5% or 7%. Do you see? And it's only, and that spread's only going to get worse as the Fed. And then the Fed comes out this week, and like five days after they raise interest rates, like we may have to raise fifty basis points in that. Yeah, no, we it may was have like, to. You know, it, and Bullard's out there going, "We should go to a, we should go to a point like tomorrow." Like it's great. Yeah. It, like and and there's nothing anybody could think. And live and the LIBOR panel can't do anything about it. This is your friendly reminder to rate, subscribe, review. Say the best things, they come in threes, like rate, subscribe, if you. If you rate it five stars, we can raise the bar. Subscribe so you can stay in tune. And don't forget at the very end to leave a nice review. Something like I love you, Sue. Rate, subscribe, review, please. Thank you. Yeah. And no, I Congress think it is Monday. It's beautiful. It's it's great. No, I, <laughs> yeah, I think it was like Monday or Tuesday. It was a one point seven one five trillion dollars moving into reverse repo, and yeah. it was like point three. So like thirty basis points, yeah, in total have been raised in reverse repo. Yeah, well, it was and, they, and well, essentially they, well, what, it's what like, the Fed like has done. What like, the Fed has done is they've kept the reverse repo rate of five basis points over the over the base rate. So their their Fed funds rate is 0.25%. And so reverse repos are 0.3%. When yeah. you see the Fed, the Fed has fine control over the markets now. If they need to, they don't need to, if they don't need to raise, if they don't want to shock the markets and raise 50 basis points in May, no, they may go 10 basis points over the uh over the base rate in reverse repos and watch that facility go from 1.7 trillion to 2.2 trillion. Yeah. And the way I, I think about it and explain to people is that money talks. So imagine like you're using like BlockFi or something, you park your Bitcoin over there and you get interest on it. Same thing with this. You take your cash and you get interest on it at uh, an account at, at the Fed. And the reason why five basis points was such a big deal is because the money market funds had actually gone negative. The demand for dollars was so high that when Powell raised, uh, uh, raised the reverse repo rate to five basis points, the actual three, the actual overnight rate only went to three and a half basis points. It was pegged at zero. So there was one and a half basis points worth of demand that wasn't even being expressed by the market because since we're the world's reserve currency, we can't go, we can't allow the thing to go negative. So the Fed was having to, to, to issue dollars into the market to keep it at, to keep the overnight rate at zero when the equilibrium rate would have been like negative 1.5 basis points. And so when they raised the point, they raised the five basis. Snyder talked about this when this happened. He said the Fed raised by five basis points in order to uncover, to find out how much latent demand there was for dollars. Right. And when we got the three, and so I've been saying to the, to the patrons, whenever I cover this, like always watch the overnight rate. When it gets down, if it ever gets below five basis points, that's going to mean that there's stress in the system and the demand for dollars is really high domestically. And you'll see, I'll either see the Fed um, raise the reverse repo rate again. The collateral yeah. demand is so high that they'll raise the reverse repo rate again in order to uncover that latent demand. But they're going to try and yeah. keep that. 
as they're going to try. Don't they can't let that go negative again. They can't let it go to zero. And it hasn't gone to zero. And the reason it hasn't gone to zero is because of SOFR. The more I think about it. So now, you know, I got news for you. Six months ago, they would have under they would have killed this if we were all still indexed to LIBOR. We would already be we would already be dead in the water, great reset, digital IDs, you know, eat and paste, the whole nine yards had this not already been in place. If and if Powell had lost, Build Back Better would have gone through, they would have destroyed what's left of the United the, the United States, and there would have been and it, 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 it would be insane. I'm not dead serious when I say this. Like, it was that was the political fight of 2020. That was the war of 2021 that mattered. And now we throw in the mix of this, the Russia-Ukraine fight and the war on Russia and the destruction of the capital markets, the global capital markets, by the sanctions regime. And everything is now broken. And the Russians have the tools on the ground. And the Fed has the tools in the financial markets. And who's caught in the middle? The bad guys, the German fucking eugenicist shitbags who, you know, I, I, I like, I, it's insane. It's so obvious to me that this is what's happening. And now it's just a race to see whose war of attrition against the other one wins. And what, and what are you seeing out of the Biden administration? Every, an acceleration of every bad policy measure that they can come up with. Now they're threatening cyber polygon. They're, they're threatening chemical weapons attack. They're threatening this. They're threatening that. Those are all things they're yeah. going to accuse the Russians of doing, which they're going to do to us because they want to try and destroy shit as much as possible yeah. in order to try and force the Fed back into a mode where they did, which they did in July, uh, March of 2020, where the Fed had to accept you know, massive spending and bailouts when the markets seize up, which is what the Fed yeah. had to do. The Corona apocalypse was a was the more I think about it, the Corona apocalypse was a, a um, attack on the was Fed. a targeted attack on the Federal Reserve. And that and that's because they allowed non-financial institutions or I guess players that have the same privilege that the commercial banks and mm-hmm. you know U.S. banking cartel had. That's why. And even though it's still like a financial institution, it was it was still a non-player that didn't have this privilege. That's why the Black Rocks were able to go to the Fed window, whereas before they could and buy stocks and buy real estate with it and everything else. And and you know, and Trump, I don't think Trump understood this because <laughs> Trump is a mercantilist and a, you know, he's a property developer from Queens. He likes cheap debt. He likes cheap money. And he he got the first part right, cut taxes, cut regulation, yada yada yada. But then at the same time, you had to cut spending too. And had he done all and had Trump been the right guy, but he would have never gotten both of those things through at the same time. He could have, but the GOP would have, you know, they were they were sabotaging him left and right because they all worked of, for Kagan. They all worked for Klaus Schwab too. McConnell and yeah. those guys, they all worked for Klaus Schwab. Fuck those guys. He, he was kind of like, like a Reagan 2.0, maybe. And now Powell's like the Volcker 2.0. No, Paul uh, Trump was absolutely not that guy. We haven't seen Reagan show up yet. Powell, I just meant it, like, say you're going to. He wanted to be Reagan. He wanted to be Reagan in the worst way imaginable, and that's exactly how he went about it. Got it. <laughs> like he he patterned everything. He he tried to pattern himself after Ronald Reagan, but he needed to cut spending as well, and he wouldn't do it. Uh, and we were at a point where we needed to cut spending, and um, 
So it was, you know, it was, it wasn't just an attack on the Federal Reserve, but it was a multi-pronged attack on every aspect of the U.S. Um, institutional system. From yeah. elections to getting rid of Trump to ensuring that they put their people in place in government here. And then they were going to go after the Fed after everybody blames the Fed for the, they were planning on blaming the Fed for inflation, even though they, they're the ones who spent $15 trillion, you know, yeah. like it's ridiculous. And I'm not, you know, I don't want to vindicate Martin Armstrong too much by saying, you know, the Fed doesn't, the Fed doesn't just um, deserve any this blame so at all. Marty will here. always say that the Fed, that, that the Fed doesn't, that, you know, the Fed hasn't done anything wrong. It's Congress. I'm like, no, Marty, it, it's everybody. The Fed was absolutely wrong for years, enabling all of this fucking bad behavior. Under Powell, yeah. they're trying to actually, they're actually trying to get, uh, get control over things again. But he's like talking theoretically about there's, there's a way. He hates libertarians and he hates the Austrian school. So because <laughs> Marty's still a, you know, he's a he's a greenbacker at the end of the day. So, um, like I'm sorry, I love Martin Armstrong, but he's a monetary crank. I'm, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is because he's a trader first right. and he's everything else second. And um, well, well, what was really important is like the difference between understanding like the fiscal part where you deficit yourself to death right. and then the actual like monetary tightening controls that the Fed has. Right. And like, yeah, even though that the treasury issues those treasuries and that's like where the quote unquote money printing happens, it's not actually money printing. The money printing, I would assume, is actually when the when the Fed decides, oh, yeah, we'll make this an asset to have the, the no, treasury no, the money on. printing happens when the treasury debt is sold. Yeah. And it is when the treasury debt is sold by the treasury department, but yeah. the fed enables that ability for them to issue exactly. unlimited amounts of treasuries. Yeah. And as long as the world, as long as the dollar is, you know, liquefying an increasing amount of world trade in nominal terms, we can continue to export the, in, the inflation. Yeah. Cause we can, we can send in, we can send dollars overseas and get goods in return. That's changing with the changing of the petrodollar system. Yes. Okay. Let's get into that real quick because I wanted to discuss Russia and it's funny. Um, shout out Uncle Jim. I actually converted him to being a, a patron of yours today, but he was mm -hmm. watching news and sent me a little clip. And it was so funny. The latest dumbassery from S Sleepy Joe's mouth was that, oh, yeah, we're going to threaten Russia and to kick them out of the G20, but don't worry, we'll keep Ukraine, which is ridiculous because. Ukraine's not a fucking cheap. Ukraine is in, isn't even one of the top 150 free economies in the world. Like Ukraine uh, isn't even so, an economy. Yeah. Like yeah, we're gonna, it, well, it's just like this a sandbox for like a pandemic experiment or a panopticon. Whatever. That aside, look, look uh, I want to know. Did, I, I wanted to discuss Russia and kind of like the history of the the ruble crisis, which you kind of like bring up a lot. And just kind of fast forward, like, well, first of all, why that's important, and then bring us to what we're looking at today as okay. they demanding payment in rubles for their oil. And now they'll say, oh, yeah, and we'll take Bitcoin, too. It's sure. like, it's funny how they, they brought that up instead of, like, gold, because you would think they would go gold first. No, they, they, they know they already have a means by which to convert all this stuff back into gold. Because remember, yeah. they produce over 300 tons of gold a year domestically. And they have a, and they're kind of tight with the Chinese. And the Chinese have a gold settled, physical gold settled futures market in Shanghai. Yeah. So they don't really need to go to a gold backed ruble, but they probably, but they will kind of de facto. And it won't be an international version. It will be a, a two tiered monetary system. So let's go back to what, ha how the, the Russians have responded to the 
beginning of World War III, which happened in February of 2014, when the Maidan blew up and Yanukovych was ousted. And and, and. what I'm sorry, that was the beginning of World War III. All right. I was paying attention back then. What what is the Maidan? Uh, the Maidan is the, the the uprising on the the is the square in front of the Ukrainian parliament, which um, the uprising on the Maidan square is what you know. Eventually, there the was the, the shooting, and then they took they stormed the capital and they got rid of the, and they just stormed the thing and, and got rid of Yanukovych. And the color, the last of the color revolutions, was successful. That was okay. the last successful color revolution. Okay, so. World War III started in February 2020, uh, February four, um, 2014. And then in when that started, Russia reunifies with Crimea. The Donbass breaks away from the rest of Ukraine. There's a there's a brief civil war that goes on in the in that area of far eastern Ukraine for and up in, into 2015, which is eventually settled with the Minsk agreements into a frozen conflict. The four signatories of the Minsk agreements were, were France, Germany, Ukraine, and the Donbass. No, no U- United States, no UK, no Russia. Everybody forgets this. Everybody says, oh, the Russians aren't implementing Minsk. The Russians aren't a party to Minsk. Fuck you. Everybody, everybody signed off on the UN resolution saying the Minsk agreements are the only way to settle the Donbass, including the United States, including the Brits, including the French, including the Russians and everybody else in the UN, UN resolution. And yet the US was in there telling the the Ukraine not to implement Minsk. So fuck everybody who thinks that Russia is the aggressor here because they're not. They're just the guys who invaded. They're just the guys who went first, but the fight was already scheduled and the bell had already rung, and it was just a matter of who was going to throw the first punch. But the time, but mostly the time and the place had begun. Just think of February 2022, late February 2022, as the boxing match started on the 16th, and it was just a matter of who was going to throw the first punch. The Russians threw the first punch on the 24th. We were planning on arming Ukraine to the point of attacking in early March. And the first 30 seconds of round one, the boxers, you know, didn't really do anything. And then boom. And then the Russians like boom and then flurried and took the guy and, and took the other and took the took NATO into the wall and put him up against the ropes and started beating the crap out of him. That's what happened, metaphorically speaking. But the fight was already designed, was already decided upon. And it was decided upon by the West. Because for eight years, the Russians were like, dude, if we keep doing this, there's going to be a fucking war and you're not going to like the outcome. So let's negotiate. No, 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 you're wrong. And more, okay, but let's go back to the ruble crisis of 2014. So what happens then? So the roots of this conflict start then in June of 2014, what happens? Or July of 2014, what happens? The end of the last day of trading of Q2 in 2014, oil closes at a little over $122 a barrel. It was a massive, well, not a massive, it was a technically important, statistically important breakout level on oil to the upside. I actually went long oil and Gazprom in my um, um, newsletter I was writing for Newsmax at the time. On the first day of trading of Q3, oil dropped like $12. And then oil went com- just got destroyed over the course of the next four months. And the ruble sank. So it would, the ruble came under pressure as the oil went lower and lower and lower from $125 and was that a barrel. Just- did it tank just because like fear of, of war and coup and capital flight? 
No, no. It was a fucking operation, Phil. By the Obama administration in Davos, they took the price of oil down and they just created this, this created the, the market was overly bullish. And then they just used momentum and they kept driving it down. Okay. And then they kept driving it down. They used, you know, and then I don't remember the details over the course, but the headlines kept moving the market. But really, it was a matter of they, they general, spent money and they crashed the futures market. Yeah, because in general, that's easy to do with any market because it's all paper, right? Right, especially in oil, especially in the oil markets. Remember, at the time, the Shanghai contract for oil, the futures contract, didn't exist. Uh, really? No, it didn't exist at the time. Uh, the, the sheepy contract didn't come into being until, I think, 2015 or 2016. So, huh. all right. So, um, the ruble comes under pressure as oil drops from 125 down into the low 30s eventually and the bank of russia is spending foreign exchange reserves to defend the ruble and defend the ruble and defend the ruble and this is going on until finally late in, in late mid uh, november putin says stop defending the ruble stop stop wow. intervening in the markets let the ruble float <laughs> let it float it goes from the mid goes from the low high 20s, low 30s, up to a high of 81 versus the dollar. At the same time, Putin um, goes forward with a gets past a massive economic liberalization package, which rejiggered the, the the subsidy system within Russia, away from oil and gas, towards agriculture and other and industry. So the money that the Russian state was bringing in, the the subsidies were cha- got changed. And the way the Russian state was moving their trade surplus around it, spent investing in the country, shifted away from oil and gas, which no longer needed the support. There's many other things that go along with that, uh, that story. And I could spend a half an hour discussing that, and I'm not going to, because I go into that for hours on end, and I'm not going to. It's the why the rule well, fell that quickly. What's well, that? Like a, the main takeaway is sanctions on We put that. sanctions on them, and we dropped, we, we, we cut their corporates out of the ability to, to roll over their debt. And- they knew that in December 2014, over $50 billion worth of Russian corporate debt would have to be rolled over. Gazprom, Rosneft, and, TNK, Luke Oil. Whatnot. And rolled and, and they rolled, rolled over the debt over. Means, so as opposed, right, meaning, well, the debt was maturing. And when, when, a, bond, when a corporate bond matures, you got to pay the capital back. Yeah, the coupon, yeah. Okay, you're not paying the coupon at that point. So you can either roll the debt over or issue a new bond to the bondholders and say, hey, here's the new price. It'll cost us a little bit of money you know, we'll have to spend a little bit of money to, to, to raise that. And what, what, what would have been a normally a two or $3 billion rollover became a $54 billion payout because the debt couldn't be rolled over because the Russians were barred from trading with various member banks. Yeah. Uh, various European and American banks, sanctions over yeah. Crimea. So that's how we engineer these, 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 these crises. We put sanctions on, which, which make it impossible for the country, for the corporate debt, to roll the debt over, and then it becomes a extreme funding crisis overnight, where the country has to then, where the companies have to pay off the bonds, bondholders or default, or the issuing country has to bail them out. So either way, it yeah. was going to be a big fifty billion dollar hit, and the Russians paid it, and they paid it because they had the savings. And while all that was happening, the 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 Chinese entered the the fray by issuing uh, the Russians. And the Chinese opened up yuan ruble swap lines to allow to get dollars into the country, to allow and to help liquefy the the the, 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 the Russian financial markets, 
such that they could re-denominate, they could reissue the, that debt in rubles or yuan as opposed to, and euros, as opposed to um, having to pay everybody off. They paid off the foreign bondholders and then the debt was, then the debt was rolled and the debt was re-denominated. Okay, so they- So China, it, did China- China was the first time China out? really entered, really entered the, the, the mode to the system- Entered the the fight to support the Russians in the financial markets. It was the first time that happened. When that so, happened, so they, it, it stabilized the ruble. The ruble started to drop, and I doubled down on Gazprom, and I you know made my people you know a lot of money because so, doubling down on Gazprom at two dollars at that point, and the and the ruble trading at eighty, the ruble then moves back into the fifties. You get sixty percent currency appreciation along with the share price appreciation. And it was crazy, like you know people doubled their money in three months. So in a way, did, did China bail them out? Kind sort of. of? It, it, they, all, they helped, yes. In a, in a sense, they just all, China has a shit ton of dollars. So if the Russians right. needed dollars, they could go get them and they can give them rubles or yuan or whatever else they had and, yeah. and make the swaps, okay? That's what was necessary. They just needed the this liquid. Is, this is another, uh, uh, another like, like economical blowback of the Triffin dilemma. <laughs> because kind like, of, and I, I, I don't want to go down it, that. Let's just keep me, it simple. Anyway. Let's keep it on, on point because otherwise we're going to get cool, lost. Cool, cool, cool. Sorry. Because what's important here is to understand that this is what happened to Turkey in 2018. Same problem. $30 billion worth of worth of US dollar denominated corporate debt needed to be rolled over. We blew, we, we tried to take out Erdogan that way. It failed. He took over the, the, the Turkish Central Bank. He asked the, the Russians and the Chinese for help. To bring money into the in, into the country, yada yada yada. Oh, wow. By the way, Turkey got fucked by the current apocalypse because the Fed went and dropped rates to zero, and then all the Turkish corporates bought re, bought back all that debt denominated in zero percent dollars. Because the reason why everybody is biblically short dollars is because we've been at the zero bound for all this time, and so denominating your debt in dollars was a good deal. You're taking money in in dollars. You can borrow at low rates in dollars. Yeah. As opposed to borrowing in Turkish lira at 25%. Yeah. And so it's a game. And wow. the only way to beat that game is to close the capital account and change the, the domestic currency, which is the next stage of this for the Russians. Now, that sets the stage for the Russians to begin de-dollarizing their economy, to set themselves up for today. And it's a long, slow process of getting of disgorging all the dollars that they have and the dollar-denominated trade that they have and substituting it with other things. And they substitute a lot of it, substituted a lot of it with euros. And now what's wound up being exactly the same problem because you know the, Euro the Europeans are really the fucking enemy here. Okay. <laughs> because who runs Barter Town? Davos. Where is their power base? Europe. I mean, it's like it's not hard. It's fucking staring you right in the fucking face. So how does the how do the Russians get out of it now? Well, now the war in Ukraine is over this. It's all coming together now. We've got SOFR goes live 2022 for the Fed. You've got um, you've got the timing is running out. COVID is running out here in, in the West. They need another thing to keep the people like freaked out about. Like, what else are you going to do? And this and the and the, the 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 coup in Kazakhstan failed. The coup in Belarus failed. Ukraine is the last former Soviet stand that we can use to destabilize Russia. So 
Now what? So this war was going to happen in, Feb- in early 2022. No doubt in anybody's mind. So now the question is, if you know the fight's coming, how do you deal with it? Well, you deal with it the way the Russians have done. You go first, you attack in such a way that you, um, that you neutralize the weaponry and the, pre- and the war preparations that NATO has done to prepare the Ukrainians to fight against the Russians by fighting a different war, and then they're fucked. And now it's now a financial war because the, the, the U.S. and Europe were always going to respond with sanctions from hell. We've been saying it for a year. If you do X, Y, and Z, sanctions from hell. And what did they do? They, they did what Justin Trudeau did to the, 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 the truckers, the people who supported the truckers revolt. They destroyed the idea that your savings is yours. They destroyed the validity of the banking system. They destroyed the idea that um, if you, they destroyed the very idea that if you, if you are, if you engage in wrong think, we will deperson you. And we will steal your money. And we will steal your life. This has been going on all through COVID, the vax passports of this, of that, everything else. Mario Draghi over in fucking Italy saying all the unvaccinated are no longer a part of our society. Oh, really, Mario? Fuck you, asshole. That's what a lot of Italians are thinking right now. If I could just get that motherfucker by his perfectly manicured fucking hair, I could beat the fucking shit out of him and throw him in a fucking garbage because that's where he belongs. But they can't because they're fucked. Institutionally, they're fucked. They're paralyzed. But that's what needs to happen. It's going to happen. And that's what Davos is scared shitless of at this point. So they're all bluffing. Because the Russians had the sanctions hammer. They have always had the sanctions hammer. They've always had this, 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 this weapon at their disposal, which is their massive base commodity presence across all freaking commodity classes. And while you can argue all day long that it's not particularly a high value add society and economy, guess what? When you've destroyed and disrupted supply chains of base commodities around the world, the really complex web of of division of labor and global trade rests on moving Russian commodities at de- at, at, at stink bid fucking prices around the world. All your valuations are based on that. You raised, the, I mean, yeah. how many times have I said, you've heard me say in the last two weeks, the world has, has always focused on what would happen if oil went to $200 a barrel. And no one's contemplated the very idea of $5 a pound aluminum. Do you understand that aluminum is supposed to trade at 85 cents? That when, you, when aluminum gets to a dollar, it's, a, it's like a, it should be an auto short. Like the dumbest trader in the world can make money shorting aluminum at a dollar or a dollar two. Do you realize that? We're trading in fucking aluminum is $4 a pound. Copper is $5 a pound. The last time copper was four fifty a pound, we were in the middle of Lehman Brothers. Wow. You can't run this fucking world on $20 a pound nickel, $4,500 a kilogram tungsten. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you can't run the world on this shit. For a $3 a pound lead, tin, like urea at $100 a freaking pound. What the fuck is people, people thinking? Yeah, which is like ironic because I've run into people on Twitter. It's like, 
oh yeah, Russia is actually taking a really big sacrifice and they're hurting. It's like, how the fuck can you say that? All they have to do is say, look, what we take rubles. So all you all you unfriendly countries, fuck you, you gotta pay us in rubles. Well, how are we gonna do that? We're not allowed to buy rubles on the open market. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't have put the fucking sanctions on you, dumbasses. <laughs> I don't know, just thinking maybe. Like, go get rubles. You know where you're gonna get rubles from? You're gonna get rubles from the fucking Indians. Because they're doing rubles for rupees and the Chinese are doing rubles for yuan. And you're going to have to go trade with them to go get rubles to go be able to buy oil. Now, all of a sudden, it's going to cost you money in the market where it used to be to your currency advantage to give the Russians your better currency than their shitty currency. Because they would take euros. Now, what used to be Russian euros. It's funny. I just think I'm just thinking about this now. Russian euros grade always traded at a at a, at a discount to Brent crude. Whereas Saudi oil would always kind of trade at a, a slight positive to Brent crude. So you'd see the Brent crude uh, price contract, you know, contracted price on ICE, the futures contract, and 85% of the world's oil trades as a premium or a deficit to Brent, or a discount to Brent. Russian euros always trades at a certain 5% discount to Brent because you got to go get it from Russia and you got to like, it, it, it's, it, it, the, it's expensive to go get it. Because it's it's, yeah. it's a it's an expensive transaction to pull off to get the stuff done and get it into Russian banks, so the yeah. Russians have to offer their oil at a discount in order to make up the price because the buyer has to the buy it's going to cost the buyer five percent to buy Russian oil at the con, at the the current futures price, so the Which Russians take the five percent hit, the 5% hit what, and sell the oil for yeah. a, for a discount. Now that now that's going to be the reverse, yeah, because now you got to go get rubles in order to get it. Now you got to go pay five percent. To go get yeah. rubles to go be able to call the Russians up and say, yeah, we want to buy a, a lot, a big lot of oil. Oops. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> like, if, I, I'm, like, if, I, like, I'm Italian, right? I'm like, yeah, fuck you, right? Putin's sitting back going, yeah, well, that's this is the price you pay. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that's why. It's so fucking like, obvious. Uh, like, that's why uh, a couple weeks ago you were showing a chart like look how undervalued the the ruble is mm-hmm. and that's like precisely why look i've been saying for two years phil i remember having a, doing a podcast with alexander mccurris like two years ago with the, over the durant and he and i go on uh, my friend our friend crypto riches show every once in a while every, every month or so when you gotta get together and do this and i said to alex I said alex please think about this i'm looking at oil at $80 a barrel or $75. This is before the Corona apocalypse. I said, we're looking at oil at $75 a barrel and the Russian ruble is trading in the mid seventies when it should be trading in the mid fifties. They're running a $25 billion a month trade surplus for fuck's sake. Why is the Russian ruble trading in the seventies? Because they're not allowed to spend them anywhere, right? They're not allowed to do anything with them because they've been sanctioned to hell and back again. And that's and we keep putting sanctions on it to keep the Russian ruble weak, thinking that that's going to destabilize the Russian economy. And all it's doing is making the Russian economy stronger because oil is so they're selling oil at seventy five dollars a barrel, in and they're taking in seventy five bucks, right? And then they turn around and they issue seventy five squared worth of rubles, right, to the domestic market, and they're paying their operating costs in rubles. Do you understand that like the Russians pull oil out of the ground at, at, a, at a ruble rate of 80 to the dollar at like $6 a barrel on average? You could drop the price of oil to 20 bucks and the Russian companies are still making money. <laughs> and you raise the ruble price to 30 and now all of a sudden they need $25 a barrel or $30 a barrel. 
It all yeah. depends on that denominator. Like, and this is what people don't fucking understand. Like, the ruble goes farther domestically when you're running a current account surplus and you're running a trade surplus. If you weaken the fucking currency, you're just making them stronger. Yeah. Like, Maron, the fucking me. I, I don't, like, how dumb are these fucking people? These are supposed to be the smartest financial engineers in the world, and they don't understand basic fucking currency effects. They just think, if I lost $10 billion tomorrow, I'd want to decap, I'd, I'd want to assassinate the president. Let's, ca- let's cause oligarch number one $10 billion, and he'll go and, and call some guy and some hard pipe-hitting Russian to go decapitate him. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Didn't work in Iran. Doesn't, hasn't worked in China. Hasn't worked in, in Russia. There's a reason for that. These are old civilizations with a different perspective on time, with a different cultural and, and um, national identity, cultural identity. And when I was talking to Joaquin Flores on my podcast the other day, and so, I just keep bringing up that same quote. What's that? Oh, it was just such a good episode. Everyone needs, needs to listen to it. Yeah, no, I was saying it brought the, the, the quote. In America, we think 200 years is oh, better. It's better to look at Europeans to Europeans. 200 miles is a long way to go. And in America, 200 years is a long time. It's very important to understand that perspective difference. We have never lived. We as a society have not lived through one cycle of history yet. And I'm, I'm, I'm macro cycle in history is around 310 years. Four, four lifespan, four average life, um, um, human lifespans, around 310 years. Okay. Do that math. Think that through one complete cycle of, of, of the four generational thing, right? Four stages of life, four cycles. There's also solar, there's also, you know, solar cycles that, that comport with that and variety of other things. The Russian society has lived through five of these. The Chinese have lived through 10 of these. The Persians have lived through 15 of these. They see the world fundamentally different than we do. Yeah. And I mean, it like, like the, the whole Russian thing, I mean, they're kind of being forced to divest from oil and that just goes sent to every other sector their economy and mm-hmm. it's as as you i guess L, L, sorry I, just, i'm just like brain blast emotions can't no speak worries, right now take, take your time when yeah when i haven't looked too much into um god damn it, what's his face pat, pat buchanan but like how Putin's like the if pat buchanan became president but for russia oh like, right, it just right, kind of right. sounds like it just sounds like too good to be true because this is like the best thing you could do for a country or a nation mm-hmm. and it's like well i don't know and it's weird and i agree with like that hermetically sealed unit of the kgb and how yeah the, what he was, like, was talking about in the podcast for those yeah, who don't yeah. he talked about that on mine too and then like how how he was like a, a russian deep state sleeper cell that was sold off as an oligarch and basically flipped the switch and said, fuck you, and is divesting his power as president and is actually making his country greater? Like, is this, like, clown? This must be clown world. 
<laughs> well, again, it depends on, you know, I, I if you have not watched Oliver Stone's The Putin Interviews, I don't know if you have or not. Uh, have you watched those? I, should, I will. Oh, yeah, you absolutely should. They're on YouTube. You can find them. Um, you absolutely. Well, like, how do you know he's not full of shit? Like, well, dude, like, like, just watch them. Okay. Like, just watch them. Okay. Like, I'm serious. You know, he's asked, he's asked, you know, Putin is not, you can tell when a guy's lying. Okay. The, the, the tells are very obvious. You know, you can tell, you know, it's just watch them and you'll see what you're, you'll, you'll see what you, you've got. It's the first half an hour of the first episode when they're going over his history. Because Stone's asking him, you know, where you were born, and how many, you know, your brothers and sisters, and why did you go into the KGB? And this, I think it's this. I think everybody should just watch, even if they only watch the first thirty minutes of it, because of the first episode. You can watch all of them if you want, but certainly just watch Putin talking about his background, and you'll you'll get a, a, a you'll get a measure of the man. And it's not it's you know, and you can bracket for however much you want to think that he's you know blowing smoke up your ass or whatever you go you you know you take your cynicism and you know you run your ears and do your thing i don't care i i happen to to watch that knowing that i've watched him give that talk enough times to know that like this is who he is you know he's you know he lives that life that he says that he lives he doesn't drink he still works out he's what 70 years old he's got a bad hip so he doesn't do judo actively anymore right he's got you got real judo injuries and, and anybody who's on any amount, amount of martial arts knows when you get to 70 years old and you've done as much martial arts as, as Putin has, then, you know, you just can't freaking throw people the way you used to. You can't fight the way you used to. You just, your, your body's it's, it's really hard in your body. I mean, martial arts is, is wonderful and brilliant and everything else. And it's, and it'll, and it, it, it'll, it'll, especially contact martial arts. It'll, it'll fuck you up when you get old. So, um, you know, it's like, you joined the KGB when you were, he joined the, when I can tell, he joined the KGB when he was out of school because that was the next thing to do. He was prepared for it. That was like, that was what he was being prepared for. That was the next stage of it. That's where he was going to go. And, and he willingly went into the KGB because it was an honorable profession for him. It think about, you know, being born in the fifties in Russia and Soviet union and think about that during the height of the cold war. You're bringing, you know, your two older brothers or died during the, during World War II. You're the youngest of three. Your parents have only got you left. Like it's yeah. a really big deal here. Like it, it's, you know, I think again, uh, going back to the top of the, the, the discussion about Powell and Jamie Dimon, like know the people you're dealing with and try to get an honest assessment of who they are because it'll tell you a lot about what you're dealing with. Like it's like the it's like the CEO character test when you're trying to establish whether or not you should invest in a company or not. You know, just looking at the the chart and the PDE ratio and the market share and blah blah and all these valuation metrics and not which is what Wall Street does because it's easy, but they never go into you know is he a good CEO or not? Does he have a good strategic vision? Does he know what the fuck he's doing? You know. And I remember, you know, I tell this story all the time. Like, I remember saying to my, my, my partner and, and friend, Dexter White, years ago, I said, you know, I was thinking Microsoft is looking really interesting here. And he's like, ah, no, this was like, I don't know, 2009, 2010, whatever. 
He said, no, I'm never, I'm never buying a share of Microsoft until Steve Ballmer is no longer CEO. That was the end of this conversation. It had nothing to do with their product line, their share price, their dividend or anything else. It was, no, Ballmer's the worst CEO I've ever seen in my entire life. He's a terrible manager. He's a terrible CEO. I'm not buying the company. Mind blown, because I was a numbers guy up to that point. Okay. Yeah. So it's the same kind so, of thing here. Everybody's like trying to analyze this war and these movements through the numbers, right? Yeah. Can the Fed raise rates by a, by a point? What will that do? Can the Fed do this? What happens if the yield curve collapses 20 basis points or this or that? Everybody's falling back on their area because they're doing that because they're falling back on their area of expertise. Yeah. And they're not thinking about what the numbers actually mean. They're not thinking about what someone could do to manipulate those numbers or what happens when those numbers don't mean anything to the players on the, at the table when this yeah. fight is bigger than the numbers are. So, That's what Volcker represents, by the way. So a, a lot of pushback I get when I try to explain this, and especially like specifically the whole capital fight thing, people don't understand like, oh, well, you, who are the people that are selling their dollars for euros in Europe? And why would they send those all the way over to the US? And then magically, you're going to have investment in these other companies. And like the American- They sell their euros, they buy dollars, they take those dollars and they go buy US stocks with them because they think they're, they, the US stock market is going to do better than the European stock market. It's not tough. Or they or property values because interest rates are rising faster in Europe than they are here than than they are here in the United yeah. States. So they take their money out of their index funds in their German index fund. They go buy then they go buy overpriced um, condos and Marco Island in Florida. Oh, by the yeah, way, that's exactly what happened in two thousand five through two thousand seven, and the property market yeah. in Florida was inundated by German investors who saw the Fed's yeah. low interest rate policy and. They, and with a strong euro, and they came in here and they bought like shit tons of freaking property, and they bit up the freaking markets here in Florida, like you wouldn't believe. And that's what actually set the the stage for Lehman Brothers collapse. Yeah, and and then they'll tell me, well, how can you have all this capital flight and not expect inflation? And then it's like them believing whether or not the Fed will raise rates, which they are. Why wouldn't the Fed? Ra- yeah, you might have you're going to have inflation, but you're going to have targeted inflation. It's going to be yeah, in the real and estate it's market. Going to it's going to be in the stock market. Capital. It's going to be here. It's going to be there. It's not going to be generalized price inflation. It's not like we're ta- thinking that Germans are all going to move over here. No, they're just going to buy the goddamn apartments and rent them. Like, and they're not going to spend any more dollars over here than they on on you know food and energy and anything else. It still costs the same goddamn amount of money to heat, or in the case of a Marco Island condominium, cool a Marco Island you know condominium. It still costs 12 cents a kilowatt hour to run the goddamn air conditioner. So why would you expect the price of energy in the United States to go up because of that? But you would expect the price of housing to go up. You would expect lumber prices to go up as a housing boom happens and housing starts rise or, you know, the price of land or, you know, different types. You're, there's always a bull market somewhere. This yeah. is what everybody like loses their mind about. There's always a bull market somewhere. If there's a bear market in one area, there's going to be a bull market somewhere else. So if there's a bear market in the euro, if there's a bear market in the euro, where's the bull market? <coughs> yeah. If they and, leave and in Europe because Europe's a shit show and interest rates are rising really quick and the stock markets have crashed, like think, think of it this way. Um, here's a perfect example of capital flight. Before the current rally started a couple of days ago, 
at the height of the bearishness, when the, when the Dow hit, Dow dropped to its low point, the Dow was off 18% off its high. In the same time period, the DAX was off 35%. The FTSE was off 30%. The Hang Seng was off 40%. The CAC 40 was off 30%. That's capital flight. The Dow outperformed all of these other stock markets. It still fell because more people were getting the cash than they were reinvesting in stocks, but they were proportionally putting more money into the U.S. equity markets, which are bigger and deeper yeah. than these other markets. are. Right. And plus like the capital flight, my the way I kind of works it out in my brain is that it's going to move into equities, whatever. And whether or not those companies will just take that capital into buybacks or whatever, it's still a number of different I, ways it could be sync, right? Yeah, I mean, but, but it's it, I still in, in my head I'm like, well, there's more money and they'll probably invest in the company to create more products, and so you have more products and like less money chasing, so it'll like even out, right? And and also it, consider- it, it will get sunk in in different. It'll sink wherever money is going to flow to where it's treated best. Yeah, and if there's and if there's an opportunity to invest in the in in expansion of American companies that can take advantage of the lower interest rate, even a, a moderately lower interest rate environment, though still rising and whatnot, yeah. then they will. I mean, this is what's going to happen. And money is just going to flow where it needs to go. And you can do some predictive. Exactly. You can do some some predictions as to what that where that's going to go, what's, what it's going to look like. And then, I mean, and then, I mean, and this is a very simplified version of this. Again, we're talking macro here. We're not talking micro. We're not don't go into the weeds here because there's all sorts of other things that start happening. You know, I watched a great interview between Mike Green and Daniel DiMartino Booth the other day about passive investing and the effects of passive investing on equity indices. And don't for a second think that um, uh, that those effects aren't massive within the market. And Green makes a really persuasive argument that, you know, we could see the Fed raising interest rates and forcing and creating deficits in one end of the thing. And because of volatility trading that, you know, equity markets rise just as a function of volatility, uh, you know, of first volatility suppression. And then, I mean, there's all sorts of weird things. I mean, I don't want to, I do a bad job of explaining his thing. I think what I'm trying to say is listen to that interview and then understand that there's a whole nother layer to what's happening in the markets than we're even aware of. And then that'll yeah. blow your mind as to, you know, why um, equities can be overvalued or in clown world about clown world valuations like we've had for as long as yeah. we could have. And it's not as simple as, oh, the Fed printed all this money and it all flew into the stock market. That's a bad yeah. analysis. Yeah. Bad analysis, by the way, has always but been like, but would an equally bad analysis be that increasing rates will cause capital reallocation and price correction. Cause I don't think no, that, that is. No, and I think that's what we're going to see, but, but we may not see it to the extent that people are talking about again, going back to okay. LIBOR versus SOFR, because in the past, whenever this happened and we started and disproportionately when the Fed would raise rates disproportionately, it would affect the Euro dollar markets harder because there's, because it's more sensitive to, to, to the liquidity flows. And so therefore, then you would see an extreme move in LIBOR as a response, which would then translate into an extreme move in, you know, variable rate interest, uh, variable interest rate um, based debt here in the United States, 
Now with that decouple, the Fed can raise interest rates and we haven't seen LIBOR could blow out and SOFR might not move at all. And therefore, we don't see the rate shock that you would normally expect, the, what, what um, JP Morgan would call the VAR shock, value at risk shock, that we would normally see, that we've seen in past cycles. And then everybody's going, well, why is this happening? It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. The, 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 this is, and, then, and then they just default to clown world. When it's not clown world, there's, a mechan- there's an anisogod mechanism that could actually be an effect here that has changed the rules of the game. And this is why it's important to understand when big changes to the rules happen, markets react to them and then readjust to them. Just like we all focus on rate hikes, but rate hikes might not mean the same thing that they've meant in the past because we have a fundamentally different way of dealing with rate hikes domestically than we have in all of our previous existence, previous experience. Because remember, and I've said this many times as well. It's now 2022. So how many professional bond traders today under the age of 60 have experienced a bear market in U.S. In US uh, treasury bonds? None. It's been a 40-year bull market in fucking treasury bonds. Nobody went into a bond pit under the age of 22, uh, 22 years old. So that means all of these fucking, you know, late boomer, early Gen X traders have lived their entire lives, have their entire career. If the, all they've done is trade bonds in a bond bull market, do you think that's not going to color their perception and their analysis? Nope. And so again, that, that comes back to like the, st- the lack of stability we're seeing in the dollar or, I mean, that's going to change if rates keep doing what they're doing. But uh, what th- this, this comes to my question, what does Pal mean by, oh, it's okay if we're not the world reserve currency? Does he actually mean that? Yeah, sure. Like, where do you think it's at? I, he didn't say that. What he said was there's room for more than one reserve currency, which is a signal that he's okay with the U.S. not being the world's reserve currency anymore. Because he knows it's a he knows he can't run, he can't do what needs to be done to save the United States commercial banking system and still have us be the world's reserve currency. Right. You've got to break Triffin's paradox. If you want to break Congress's spending, you have to break Triffin's paradox. And it's already happening. It's that was the biggest signal there was. Oh, by the way, we're gonna we're, yeah, we're gonna decouple from the world. Let the Russians and the Chinese decouple from us. It would actually be good for the world. I really think this is what's happening. Like, look, the commercial banks are either staring at oblivion under Klaus Schwab or a, you know, 50% haircut in their lending, you know, their traditional, remember their traditional business is dead. Why do you think they're all moving into crypto? They need products to sell and there's nothing to sell because nobody has any money. So think you know, and you know, under a under a low interest rate regime, net interest margin is nearly zero, which is where banks make most of their money. They, you know, take your savings, lend it out at five percent, pay you two percent, and they take the three percent big. That's net interest margin, right? Their in, net interest margin that, under that example is three percent. You lend it five, you pay two, you take three, right? At zero percent, their net interest margin is almost is almost nothing. That's why they're all gambling in the casino. That's why they're all. That's why they're only making money in their investment bank portions. That's why the Chinese wall between um, 
traditional banking and investment banking doesn't really exist, even though it exists, it kind of exists legally, but nobody, you know, nobody, everybody's peeking over the fucking wall. Like, come on, talk to Chris Whalen and he'll tell you that, that nobody believes that shit. Saying that shit, he's been saying that shit for 15 years. He's absolutely right about it. Like, the, the banks have to do what they have to do in order to survive and, and make money. And, you know, the that's just the way things are. So if we can yeah. get back to now, the regional banks don't work. The regional banks operate different because the regional banks are actually doing local lending on local projects, you know, and uh, but the big New York banks are not. And we need a dev- devolution of that power out of the big banks. And, that, and we don't need any more banking consolidation in the United States. And I think mm-hmm. that if the Fed, you know, goes through this process with SOFR and other things, I think, I, again, I'm making this point. This is a very, very early embryonic thesis. And I'm going to have to go in a couple of minutes because I do have another phone call. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I but I just wanted so to, because I actually good. have a phone call with somebody that I was going to, he was going to challenge me on this and, uh, privately. And so I want to chat with him. So um, yeah, no, cool. I mean, I, I again, uh, embryonic. This is this is the way we get better at these things. And, and only by bringing up ideas like this, can we, you know, error check, test our theses in the real world, talk with other people about it. You know, I, otherwise I'm just sitting there, you know, yelling into a vacuum. I may be right, but I'm still <laughs> yelling into a vacuum, right? I yeah. may be wrong and I'm yelling into a vacuum. Hopefully I'm right. So I'm yelling into a smaller vacuum than previously where everybody goes, yeah, you're right about that. And then, then they can actually trade based on it. And maybe we can shift the, shift the perception. So I don't know. Like I still waiting for the Turkish lira to collapse. And I was right about the Turkish lira. I'm still waiting for zero hedge to like, tell me that I was wrong. They haven't. They didn't publish any of my articles saying that Erdogan wasn't a madman. Did you notice that? I noticed it. I think it's really funny because <laughs> they were like, ah, this is, it's going to collapse. I'm like, no, it's not. They're doing, they're running the Russian playbook. It's not going to work. And they didn't publish, they didn't scrape any of those articles because they didn't agree with them. It's fine. I don't care. Whatever. Okay. Okay. But like your, your embryonic thesis about is... SOFR and LIBOR and that discount. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's really, I, I, you know, I, I just caution people to take, don't take this too far yet. Really start to think mm-hmm. about it talk with anybody you know who's a fucking repo guy or a bond trader or this or that i mean seriously right. like this is a big deal because if i'm right about this then everybody's conventional wisdom about what's going to happen when the fed aggressively raises rates is going to be wrong and then it's going to get yeah. really interesting it just seems like there's too many people that are so embedded to what they've been used to for decades that sure. they just have that bias of course they do everybody does and you got to remain flexible in this thing, man. I mean, that's the hardest thing about, that I do. Like, I have to have people, I have to have, you know, it, you've got to be willing when you get data that is discontinuous. Like, I wanted to believe that the Fed was a bad guy. And then Jerome Powell raised interest rates. Yeah. And then Jerome Powell raised the RRP rate by five, by five basis points. And at that moment in time, and I'm like, really? Oh, fuck. And I was like, it's like this big, you know, it was like the, the big aha moment. I'm like, that, oh shit, what does that mean? Oh fuck. And then you start thinking about it and you, you gotta be remain flexible. You, you can't be so wedded to your own, you know, sniffing your own goddamn farts all day that, that you're right about everything. Um, yeah. You can't, you have to, this is Davos's problem. They are so convinced they're right or so convinced they're powerful enough that they can force rightness onto the world that that's why they're going to lose yep central planning doesn't work yep so i think that's a good place to stop to be honest with you yes i agree thank you so much for your time this is great don't worry man. Put it out. No worries. 
Appreciate right. it. I appreciate I'll let you, you go. And just talk, just for anyone who might be new listening, where can people find you? Sure. Um, so the blog is over tomluongo.me. It's spelled like my last name, L-U-O-N-G-O. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at TFL1728, and you can sign up like Phil over at Patreon slash Gold Ghosts and Guns. Everything is actually centered through the blog. You can you can sign up for Patreon there. You can find the podcasts all there and everything else. So just go there. I get scraped to all these other places like Zero Hedge and Lou Rockwell, but that's not though. Everything originates from the blog and then propagates out into the world from there. Okay. Awesome. So. Great, Tom. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank yep, you. You too. Thanks, Bill. We'll take. Uh, be well. Bye. Yeah. What an absolute legend. Am I right or am I right? Again, major thanks for Tom for giving me the time to break all of those complex ideas down so I can facilitate those ideas forward to you guys. Did you take notes? If you didn't, maybe go back and do that. And Tom's making the rounds in the podcast world, and the more you do something, the better you get at it. So some of the recent episodes I've heard him on are just so tight and consolidated and you know, repetition is key, man. But yeah, that's the world we're living in right now. So it's going to be really interesting to see how exactly all of that unfolds in the next month or two or a year. Dude, I, I can't even think without peeing my pants. It's it's exciting and frightening all at once. And we know Bitcoin's going to come out king either way. So Again, big shout out to Shift Crypto, the sponsors making this happen, and an even bigger shout out to Corey and Luke at the Bitcoin Made Simple podcast and now network. I'm very, very, very thankful to have come aboard and just contribute this knowledge and share it and get myself out there to more lovely ear holes. So if you liked what you heard, share it with a friend, family member, buddy, stranger on the street, I don't care and rate it five stars maybe give it a nice review or don't whatever i can't tell you what to do i'm no authoritarian working for davos i'm no young world leader i i am in my own right though because i own my failure and god knows our so-called leaders do not so with that said once again i'm phil gibson you can catch me at the twitters at mr sue and We'll just wrap it up and do it all over again next week. So, again, big shout out to Corey and Luke. And thank you for listening. Oh, and one more thing to add. If you want to watch the YouTube version of that, I'm going to throw that in the show notes. And the song that you're hearing in the background, that's me. So, if you want to check out my music, I wrote a song called End the Fed. And I'll throw that in the show notes as well. So, uh, and there you have it. Anyway, see you cats on the flip-flop later. So